Amen. Okay, you go back to your seats or the Sunday school. I was thinking one one way we can get the children to realize the full length of Christmas tide is we could always do the same thing they do in the Eastern Orthodox churches, which is give gifts on Epiphany. And that if they had to wait through those 12, 12 days to get their gifts on Epiphany, I think they would sink in. Christmas is not here yet. <laughs> Please pray with me. <clears throat> Most holy God, send your spirit among us this morning that in these words we can discern a message from you that can enrich our lives. All this we pray in your holy name. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. I can see these words stitched in needlepoint, hanging perhaps in your grandparents' house as you walk in the door and see them there. There they are with a nice wooden frame and a cream-colored background with an extra-large eye to mark that first word, in the beginning was the word. That needlepoint is there to remind you of the fact that in that house, that house is a Christian house, and if there's one thing you need to know, it's that Jesus was God. In the beginning was the word. Now, my father and I had a lot of great discussions over the time about theology and God. My dad, as I've mentioned before, was a lifelong Unitarian. And in the 1990s, one of the books that he picked up that was one of his favorites was Marcus Borg's Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. I still have his copy on my shelf of that, carefully underlined and highlighted with certain pages folded over so that he could have it for reference. And for those of you who've read that book, you realize that Borg creates a distinction in that book between the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus. You have the pre-Easter Jesus, the Jesus who is the great wisdom teacher. The wisdom teacher we find primarily, primarily in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This teacher of alternative wisdom that leads us to deeper path and insight to God. But then you have the post-Easter Jesus the Jesus that was manufactured by the church as a response to the death of Jesus. And it's this post-Easter Jesus that then elevates Jesus to the same level as God. It's this post-Easter Jesus that gives us this prologue of John, this prologue that seems to equate God with Jesus. Needless to say, my father was not a big fan of this prologue of John. And when he was done talking to me about Marcus Borg and meeting Jesus again for the first time, He would then hand me another book, potentially, another book that's also on my shelf right now, a book by Elaine Pagels called Beyond Belief that looks at the Gospel of Thomas. Pagels argues that the Gospel of Thomas, a sayings gospel that didn't make it into the New Testament, 
the Gospel of Thomas, a gospel that was discovered in the 1940s in Egypt in Nag Hammadi. This gospel was of the same age as the Gospel of John. On the one hand, you have the Gospel of Thomas, which puts Jesus as a wisdom teacher, or at least according to Pagels, portrays Jesus as a wisdom teacher. Then you have the Gospel of John, which of course elevates Jesus to be on the same level of God. And then because of political reasons in the second century, primarily led by a guy named Irenaeus of Leon, next thing you know, the Gospel of John makes it in the, the, the canon and the Gospel of Thomas gets cut out. My father would have preferred the Gospel of Thomas. And again, I've got his copy of Beyond Belief sitting on my shelf. And when he was done with that, he gave me a third book, a book by Richard Rubenstein called When Jesus Became God. This book looks at the debates of the fourth century that gave us the Nicene Creed. It goes through step by step what different people believed and how these arguments pan themselves out. One of the big arguments of the day was, was there a time when he was not? Rubenstein opens his book with a story of a riot in Alexandria in the mid-fourth century. And the big point of this riot uh, was, was there a time when he was not? In other words, is Jesus a pre-existent word of God? Was Jesus the pre-existent word of God? Or is Jesus something that was a creation as the Arians of the time would have believed. Rubenstein goes into great detail to show how politics came into play to give rise to the Nicene Creed that we have today. And so my father would hand me these books and make sure that I heard them and make sure I understood them. And as I looked through them, I'm like, wow, the absurdity of it all. <laughs> and then I look and I, I think about walking into one of those houses, say, in Iowa, and seeing that needlepoint on the wall, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And I think, gosh, maybe that's where it should stay. On the wall, a mark of a belief of the past, something that we don't need to wrestle with today. What do you think? It was Christmas Eve a number of years ago. At the time, I was working at Memorial Church at Harvard as the undergraduate chaplain. And so it meant that on Christmas Eve, I was one of the assisting ministers of communion. And the way that we would do it then is we would all get dressed, dressed up in surplices uh, and cassocks, which for me as a good congregationalist always took a little getting used to. But I'd get dressed in my surplus and, Catholic, uh, and, uh, surplus and cassock along with my tippet, as they were called, those black scarves that go over your shoulders. And we would march in procession the beginning of the Christmas Eve service to O Come All Ye Faithful. And I remember sitting up there on the, on the big dais and looking up at my boss, the Reverend Peter Gomes, as he was preaching And one of his first lines that Christmas Eve was, I am a Christmas Christian more than I'm an Easter Christian. I remember sitting there being confused as I'm looking out over the congregation. Does it mean that he likes presents and he likes (laughs) candles in the season? Why does he say he's a Christmas Christian, not an Easter Christian? And he elaborates and he says, I'm more a Christian of the Incarnation than of the resurrection. I'm more a Christian of the incarnation than the resurrection. I sat there in that uncomfortable wooden chair thinking to myself, what on earth does he mean by that? The text he was preaching on that night is the text that we have for today. John chapter 1, 1 to 14. For the entire rest of that sermon, I was thinking in my head, what on earth does he mean by that? He is a Christmas Christian, and not an Easter Christian, or more than an Easter Christian, a Christian of the Incarnation, 
more than the resurrection. It got me thinking about some of the classes I took in divinity school. When I was in divinity school, I wanted to prepare myself to work in a church. And so, unlike some of my colleagues, I insisted on taking as many survey courses as I could. I figured in a church, I needed to know uh, a little about a lot of things rather than a lot about a few things. Because when you're here preaching, you get questions from all different types of people of all different things, and it's convenient to have a response, or at least be able to point someone in the right direction. And in order to do that, you need a broad survey of what it is to study. So I found myself taking this course on patristic theology, something that's highly unusual for a UCC minister to take, but this is the theology of the church fathers of the early church. And I remember one of our readings was from this very same Irenaeus of Leon, the same guy who privileged the Gospel of John over the Gospel of Thomas. And in the midst of Irenaeus' writings, he lays out uh, a doctrine of the atonement that became known as recapitulation. So for those of you who are theological junkies, you know what I mean when I say atonement. Atonement is is, is a doctrine of what saves you. How are you saved in Jesus? Most people would say a substitutionary atonement. You're saved in Jesus because he substitutes on the cross for your sins. He takes the penalty for your sins rather than you. That's one theory of the atonement. Well, here was Irenaeus of Leon talking about another theory of the atonement called recapitulation. And the way it worked was, all of a sudden, your human beings were made, according to in Genesis, in the image and likeness of God. Well, according to Irenaeus, when the fall happened, you lost one of them. You lost the likeness of God, but you kept the image of God. And that in the incarnation, as the word becomes flesh, through the incarnation, that likeness is restored. Because Jesus actually experienced every aspect of what it means to be a human, that means every aspect of what it means to be a human was somehow sanctified by the real divine presence of God, thereby restoring the likeness of God and opening up the opportunity for true union with God. It's an incarnational atonement theory. You are saved by the incarnation. Now, at the time, I didn't think much of it. After all, Irenaeus relies a lot on the philosophical worldview of his time. But it got me thinking when I remember sitting there listening to Peter Gomes' sermon, Incarnation. Incarnation. When I lived in Iowa, my best friend and I noticed that there was a distinct lack of social spaces for gay men in Iowa. There were no bars there in Ames, Iowa, And the only way that people would meet one another is through online stuff, online dating apps or uh, online meetup apps that they had. And we thought this was a great travesty because for both Matthew and myself, one of the great benefits of being gay are the other people you get to meet in the gay community, the richness of this community, the people's experience, life experiences and perspectives. And so we wanted to create a space to make that happen. And so we started in early 2012 opening up Matthew's house as an open invitation for anyone to come. Uh, so anyone could come. The only strict rule is no drinking if you're under 21. Um, but people showed up from ages 18 to 72 uh, at these various gatherings, and we had a wonderful time over dinner. Uh, sometimes it's tough cooking dinner for 50-plus, but we did it anyway. And one of the first ones of these, we were leaving, and we were walking down to go to uh, Campus Town, 
because we want to show our solidarity. It's like, yes, incredibly heterosexist Ames, Iowa. We are here, and you're going to have to deal with us kind of thing. Uh, us being little rebels as we're walking down to the bars in the freezing cold. And as I was walking down there, I was talking with a graduate student named Andreas Lopez. And as we were talking, we started talking about faith, and he mentioned how uh, he grew up a Catholic, and he was educated by Jesuits. And he said even though he didn't regularly attend services, he still considered himself to be a Catholic. And I asked him why. He said the one Catholic belief that stuck with me more than anything else is the firm Jesuit belief that God is in all things. That God is present in all aspects of life. And that because of the incarnation, all aspects of life and humanity are somehow holy and made sacred. And we're saying, really, this is an intriguing belief. You know, there's... You know, say, you know, w- w- you know, can you elaborate on it? And he said, John, say, for instance, this gathering we were just at. Most people wouldn't say this is a holy space, but he's like, I can see it that way. God was present in some of those conversations. With the support that people were being shown, with compassion that was being shown, by people listening to others, by the creation of community, he said God was very much present there. God could be as present there as God is in worship and a church on Sunday morning. This is what the Jesuits taught me, and it's something that I firmly hold to. God infuses our whole selves, even those parts we don't like to talk about. Do we see it? The liberation theologian Marcella Altus Reed, in the beginning of her book, Indecent Theology, starts with the image of lemon vendors on the streets of Buenos Aires. Here are women who are indigenous women who are selling lemons on the streets of Buenos Aires. And Altus Reed says, here are these women who uh, are looked down on by everyone in society. They're women who are dirty, they tend to smell, and they're selling lemons to get by, they don't have any permits to do so. Society and those who are all right and proper want them somewhere else. And she asks, can you see God in these lemon vendors on the streets of Buenos Aires? In her commentary on Mark, she talks about a drag queen uh, who was murdered uh, in Brazil. She asks, can you see Jesus in this murdered drag queen in Brazil? Liberation theologians lift up the material world as being significant and holy. For a non-liberation theologian, everything's about the spiritual world. Oh, just focus on the spirit and everything else is fine. Liberation theologians say, well, that's all well and good, but if you're poor, just focusing on the spirit is not good enough. Liberation theologians say you actually have to focus on the material world. Whether or not you have food to eat becomes a spiritual issue very quickly. The material world matters. Your whole bodies matter. Feminist theologians talk about the importance of knowing through your body, experiencing things through your body. Theologians who are liberation theologians rely on a doctrine of the incarnation in order to justify the presence of God in all things. There's not this dualist separation between spirit spirit and body for liberation theologians. It's about an incarnational view of things. God is present in all things. Now John's prologue, the beginning, our text for today 
begins with this doctrine of the Logos, the Word. According to thinking at the time, the Logos of God, the Word of God, the self-expression of God is in all things. Within each of you is a portion of God. The Logos of God is in each of you. And according to John, this Logos of God becomes fully manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, according to John, most people in the world reject it. You can say that all things in life are holy and sacred, all people are holy and sacred, but when we look around at our society, how often is that rejected? You look at some of the controversies that we see down at our southern border in the United States. Are the people who are trying to seek asylum in the United States seen as being holy and sacred, made holy by the Incarnation? You look at people on the margins of our society, people who might be in prison. Yes, they might have done, yes, they might have done wrong, but can you see them as being holy and sacred? Can you see their bodies and their whole selves as redeemed to the presence of God in the Incarnation? That everyone is blessed and a child of God, everyone possesses both the image and likeness of God, but people reject that. We as a society see people who are poor and say, oh, well, these people deserve what they're doing. They're somehow morally flawed. People might not be perfect, but can we see them as being holy and incarnational? People reject that. This is exactly what the Gospel of John is talking about. And then John goes on to say, but those who could see Jesus, those who could actually see Jesus for what he was, were able to be full of grace and truth. You could see the truth of God's presence and the grace that flows from that. Now, on Christmas, we celebrate the Incarnation. Christmas is more than just talking about a baby in a manger and shepherds and angels. It's more than gifts and greens and reds that we see around us even now. What Christmas is about for Christians is the Incarnation. This aspect of the Word becoming flesh in Jesus Christ. And our challenge for Christmas season is, can we actually take that and embrace it? In all things that we do in life, can we see the sacredness and holiness of life? Can we see the redeemed nature of life? Even when someone cuts you off on the highway and you're really frustrated and you want to honk and you want to say lots of nasty things, can you still see that person as being a child of God and God somehow being blessed and redeemed the creation around us? The scriptures tell us that the world was not ready for Jesus and yet Jesus came into the world. Can we be transformed by that? to see the truth and grace that's there. I really do wish that I could talk to Peter Gomes again. He died, unfortunately, in 2011. But if I did have the chance to talk to him, one of the things I would say to him is, I get it. I get what you were saying that night on Christmas Eve. And maybe I realize that I'm now a Christmas Christian too.